and welcome back to Destined Demons, a Dark Material discussion. My name is Sharon Lee. And I'm Jordan Storkerson. And thanks again for joining us after last week's premiere. Both of us really, really liked this episode, so we're really excited to talk with all of you about our thoughts. If any of you didn't listen to the previous episode, that's okay. I'm going to give you a TLDL, too long, didn't listen, of what we talked about. So we discussed what the world looks like and who the people are, and we talked about what demons were, and that's something we're really going to expound on for this episode based on what we saw on the TV show this week. Some of the ground rules that we're going to have for the show are going to be no spoilers, right, Sharon? Correct. Never spoilers. We also discussed what the show is going to look like, so we're going to talk about things that are different from the books and discuss different ideas and different themes that we see in the TV show. And every week we're going to play some kind of game or add some sort of gimmick to our show. So one thing that we're going to be doing on a regular basis is something called Devil's Advocate, where we're going to pick a topic or a line from the show or something, and we're going to debate or argue about it. And it's called Devil's Advocate because one of us is going to take one stance, and whoever has that stance, the other person must take the opposing side. Another bit that we're going to do is going to be called Explain That Demon, where we're going to pick a character from the show, most likely from the episode that week, and we're going to pick apart why we think that person is represented by that animal and how that reflects our own human nature and how it applies to us as people in the real world. We might do that a little later, just because we don't know the characters that well yet. We'll wait till they're a little more fleshed out before we delve into that. And we're also just going to discuss random topics and things that have stood out to us in the show. And without further ado, let's go ahead and talk about this episode. So in my opinion, I really liked a lot of things, and I definitely have a few problems with some other things. How do you feel about this first week, Sharon? I felt the same. I actually rewatched the episode just now just to give myself kind of a refresher since I watched it a few days ago. There are certain things that have stood out to me. Were there any things that stood out to you? A few things jumped out to me in terms of just the pacing and how fast things were done. Mostly certain scenes where I felt like they were trying to cover a lot of ground and a lot of exposition very quickly. So, you know, right in the very beginning, we have just that black screen and the raw text where it's explaining, you know, this is a different world and everyone's character is represented by a demon that follows them around. And there's a child of prophecy, which is very much a trope that shows up a lot in literature. And I understand it's a lot of ground to cover and I kind of understand understand why they chose to do it in certain ways but there is one thing I really liked and that was the transition from writing that in the north the witches whisper of a prophecy and then suddenly they cut to this flooded version of Oxford and there's a helicopter they give you like four lines of text and it has mention of like witches and prophecies and they cut to something very modern so it doesn't fit what they're talking about so I'm really interested to see how they kind of tie things together Right. And I I think that's also a really good way of just demonstrating what we had talked about last week, where the worlds are similar but different. So they have magic, they have older looking customs, but they're still modern and they still have electricity and they still have like modern things like helicopters that fly you in. So I do like that they brought that out so quickly. 
I like that as well. And one thing that was really cool was how they mentioned demons in that little blurb of exposition. And then they start showing this alternate version of Oxford and there's just demons everywhere. You know, there's these statues, these gargoyles on all the buildings. And I guess I never really thought about it before how we have this entire universe that grew up with demons side by side with their humans. And I never really thought about how that would influence fashion and architecture and culture as a whole. And it's really interesting to see how HBO is trying to capture all of that. And they wasted no time showing it with these statues. And just on the topic of demons, I think it's really interesting how they kind of set up what the relationships look like with their humans pretty quickly and what exactly the demons are for their humans. So as soon as they put Lyra on the screen, she has Pan on her shoulder and he's supposed to be a physical manifestation of her conscience. And the very first line that Pan has is he's explaining the rules for a game. So what do you think of this idea as demons as a person's conscience? Where did you see that? It was just like you said, it's almost like they ask for advice and it's like having a parent with you all the time, but not not so much a parent because they don't discipline you, but like maybe an uncle or a friend who knows better and they're telling you this is the right thing to do instead of what you want to do. And they're just constantly there watching you and trying to make sure that you make the best decisions. So like Pan is like always questioning Lyra and saying, are you sure this is a good idea? We shouldn't be here. We need to go. This is not a good idea. But Lyra just kind of ignores him. She does it anyway. So they're connected. It's like she's just ignoring her conscience. She knows it's wrong because Pan is telling her, but she's just going to do it anyway. And I think it's really interesting to see how certain people interact with their demons in a very particular way. And other people interact very differently from that other person. Which makes sense because if we all have our own internal voice, we have a different dialogue with it than other people would have with theirs. Right. And also, even with the master poisoning the decanter full of wine, it's interesting to see the interaction that he has with his demon. Because if you think about Lyra and Pan, if Pan were to see Lyra place a poison or something bad into a drink, you would expect Pan to be like, don't do it. It's not a good idea. But for the master, like his demons, like, do it now. This is your chance. Do it now. Even though the master actually expresses some hesitancy before he dumps the packet into the wine. I really like that because it seems like the adults have this very specific way of interacting with their demons. They really respect the demon's opinion more than Lyra seems to respect Pan's. Lyra has this moment where she's about to go in the retiring room and Pan's like, no, it's expressly forbidden. And she immediately goes, I'm going in anyway. Whereas, like you said, with the master, his demon urges him and he's like, okay, and he does it. And then there's Asriel, and virtually every time Stella Maria suggests something, Asriel's like, oh yeah, that is a good idea. That is probably something I should do. And I think that really reflects how a kid thinks versus how an adult thinks. There is a transition between like child to adult. Like Their demons will settle, and that kind of marks the time period from which they transition into adulthood. So there's this relationship that people have with their demons, but obviously one of the best parts about this universe is the relationships that the characters develop with each other. And what do you think of Lyra's relationship with Lord Asriel? So the way that it's portrayed in the book and the way that it's portrayed in the series is actually a bit different. In the book, he seems to take a little more interest in her daily activities, and he does sort of act more like a parent figure. Like, he'll have her update him on the things that she's been doing. Even though he doesn't really see her that frequently, when he is around, he'll be the disciplinarian. 
He'll ask her what she's been doing, kind of call her out when she's lying to him, things like that. But in the series, he just seems to not care as much. I get that it's it's very rushed because they are trying to get as much storyline into the first episode as possible. But the way that their relationship is in the series, he just seems more disconnected. And he just seems to have this total sense of neglect around Lyra. Or at least his way of showing whatever he feels about her is very subdued. Yes. Something that I noticed was when he was trying to take her shoes off. So it's almost like it clicked for him. He's becoming sort of like a caretaker for her. He's taking off her shoes because she's in bed and she's going to sleep. And then he just stops and he's like, what am I doing? Yeah, he just doesn't like it. He starts like taking care of this kid. And immediately he's like... This is too much effort. I'm just going to sit on the edge of the bed. I'm going to brood about this like whole expedition. But she always tries to engage with him first, it seems like. The way that Azriel seems to show interest in her is very different from what she's hoping for as a kid, I think. She wants someone who wants her to be around. Like She states when she first sees him that she hasn't seen him in ages and she's getting nothing from him. And he seems to recognize that, but it just doesn't seem to be something that he cares about. As soon as he starts talking to her in the retiring room, he's like, oh, I have a job for you. Yeah, he becomes way more focused on the things that he's involved in, the things that directly affect him. So he wants someone to keep an eye on the master because he's about to present this very controversial thing. But he never stops to say, oh, how are you? What have you been up to? It's just more like, okay, well, since you're here, you might as well just help me. Right. Azriel seems to have this way of trying to push her. He gives her the job in the retiring room. And in the book, this is a scene that I really liked. And I don't feel that it's central to the plot. But it says that during one of his visits to Jordan College, he talks with her and he's asking her what she's doing on a daily day basis. And she's like, oh, you know, I play with my friend and I run around on the roof. And he's like, have you gone underground? Have you seen the crypts? I think it's really interesting to see how, in a way, he is pushing her. It's just not the form of love that she's looking for. And honestly, that just makes me so sad. We have this 12-year-old girl who got abandoned, and she has no stable father figure or parent. And I just feel so bad for Lyra. Oh, for sure. I mean, even in the book, it mentions that she doesn't really have much of a family. If anything, the closest she has to a family are the servants because they see her all the time. They feed her, they clothe her, they help bathe her. The scholars at the college don't really have time for her. Even though she is loved, like they all care about her and they want what's best for her, she doesn't feel it. She doesn't get the affection that children need when they're developing. And I think that sort of reflects on how she behaves around Mrs. Coulter, who is all of a sudden this adult who's stunning and so exciting. She's an explorer. She does all these cool things, suddenly paying attention to her in more ways than what have you been doing in your studies? Why are you running around and getting into trouble with the servants and the local kids? This woman is there to try to understand who she is. She's trying to get to know Lyra in some ways. And then all of a sudden, this one person, this complete stranger, shows some interest in her and she just latches on. Physically, she literally latches on and gives her this hug that lasts far too long. In the book, they seem to hint at a relationship with the Egyptians that she had when she was much younger. And we didn't really see that in the show, but we got a good glimpse of what the Egyptians look like and what their culture is like. A few things that stood out to me was that they have this really important ceremony for Tony Costa because his demon settles. 
Yeah, I actually thought that was interesting because I don't, I did not recall that being in the book ever. So it's an interesting take on the culture of the Egyptians. I always imagined them to be this close knit community where they, they were all just essentially one big family where they take care of each other, they make sure everyone's fed, everyone's safe. But I never quite envisioned this grand ceremony where everyone's donating whatever silver they have to make some ring for some kid whose demon just settled. I understand why they did that, because it's almost like this cultural thing of coming of age, but it was an interesting take that I did not expect. I felt it was more just to capture the importance of demons, and while I agree that's important for the plot to keep moving forward, you're right, it just never struck me as something that the Egyptians would be about. To me, in the books, they always came off as these people who were kind of nomadic, you know, they live on these boats and they travel around the fens. Their king just kind of like comes and visits every once in a while when he's in the area. So, like you said, it's just a very tight-knit community, and there is a very strong sense of camaraderie among the Egyptians. Which I think is something we should appreciate in our world, you know, what kind of communities do we all have that we are actually really integral parts of that we just don't really appreciate. Right. And I think part of that is also just, we have smaller tribes. Like our tribe is our family. And then you can expand that to extended family and then friends and things like that. But with Egyptians, it's like one huge tribe. And it's, it's a really nice thing to see. One thing they never told us in the books, and that I'm wondering if maybe they'll hint at or explain in the show, is what the Egyptians are and where they came from. Because in the book, they were described more as a social class rather than an ethnic group, and I think that was represented here in the show. I just kind of wonder what their story is, you know, who are all these people and how did they get there? And why are they so shunned in society? They explicitly call them outcasts in the show. It's essentially that they don't follow the general social constructs. And because they don't follow those rules, they are outcasts. Like, they dress differently. They value things differently. Like, because of that difference, people don't understand it, and then they shun them. So just the, the way that their entire society is set up is also pretty interesting, because class is definitely very much present in this world. And it's very, very blatant. And you can kind of tell that the Egyptians aren't exactly well off. You know, you can tell that they spend a lot of time outdoors. A lot of them are wearing clothing that looks like they're dressing for warmer weather. And they have that scene when they introduce Lord Fa. And it's a very communal space. You know, there's tons of people in one building and they're all cooking or working on their clothes or their boat or something. They're all doing a task, but it's very central to the community at large. It's not like people who congregate in smaller homes and kind of just do their own thing. When the Egyptians are talking, they mention the police right after they lose Billy Costa. And one of them says, oh, the state police aren't going to care about Egyptian. And they show that in the book, too. There's another line where they say something along the lines of, and if something happened to someone in the community, well... It was only Egyptian. And they show that right after Roger goes missing, someone says, oh, the state police aren't going to be looking for a kitchen boy. And it's very sad to see how the worth of someone's life, whether or not they've gone missing, is just completely dependent upon that person's role in society at large. Yeah, and I think that sort of plays into why these so-called gobblers keep taking Egyptians and servants. Even though their presence will be, no or their absence will be noticed, no one's going to do anything about it. 
And they mentioned in the very beginning that this magisterium is supposed to be in charge. Well, what exactly is the magisterium and what are they doing? And, you know, they eventually cut out to show us what the magisterium looks like. And it's represented in this very totalitarian way, almost. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. So the Magisterium is some very powerful entity that has control of that world. So the controversy that came with Lord Asriel's appearance at the college, they were always worried about offending the Magisterium or making them unhappy because that's just something that you can't do. And they keep bringing up Scholastic Sanctuary. So that was their safe space from the magisterium scrutiny. It's definitely some totalitarian regime, and it's something that people fear. This kind of goes back to how this world seems very, very old, because the magisterium has so much power. So it's kind of like back in the day when the Catholic Church had say over everything. They had so much power. So then you start to think about, oh, the timelines are so weird because This one religious entity has so much power and so much control over all these people's lives. But I love that you bring up this word controversy because I think controversy played a large role in why the movie never did well. And I kind of want to look at the Magisterium right now and kind of look at the big problems that it has and maybe why in this universe it's not something that should be protected and maybe is something that they should fight against, that they should use their scholastic sanctuary to try and rise against. You know, you look at this magisterium and the way it's portrayed here, and their building is exceptionally large. It's arranged in this big, giant, circular stadium. And the logo particularly stood out to me. It's very reminiscent of the cross that the Crusaders used on their shields. And I know some people may not like this whole discussion of religion as something to rebel against in this universe, and that's probably a big reason why the movie never took off. I know a lot of people have their problems with organized religion, and I do agree that organized religion throughout history has done a lot of bad, but in a lot of ways it's done a lot of good as well. And I think that the way that they're trying to capture organized religion in this show is representative of a lot of the bad parts of it, and maybe that's something we should work on. And getting off the topic of organized religion, this is still a governmental power, right? We look at Lord Asriel, and he seems to be pretty wealthy, has a lot of power, a lot of influence, and it doesn't seem like he's someone who really likes to quote-unquote know his place, and we really see that right away in Jordan College. You know, there's all this information, there's all this stuff out there, and they're saying that we shouldn't have a right to learn about it, and from the perspective of someone who doesn't like authority, he doesn't want to deal with this higher power of government telling him what to do. So I think it's really interesting to see how when we look at society at large and the way that class is split up in our own world, are there times that we need to step back and look at what the government is saying and question it and say, is this right? Is this what's best for me and my community? And what am I going to do about it? Oh, I completely agree. I've always seen it as fearing people questioning. And I think questioning is literally the best thing that you could possibly do because that's the only way to grow it's the only way to learn and if you question it and you still believe what you had believed earlier faith in your religion or whatever is that much stronger and if not that's okay too at least for in in the case of the magisterium asriel is bringing all this new information that contradicts what they have been saying for years and that scares them because 
that's what they've been telling people and people believe them and what's going to happen now if all of a sudden this truth that they've been touting is no longer a truth. Right. Within the context of the retiring room, it definitely seems like he's supposed to be the hero. You know, all these old dudes are sitting in their chairs in in uproar saying, we can't even hear these ideas. And Lord Azrael is kind of yelling over them. And part of me cringed at it at first because in my head, I thought this was just bad exposition where they're like really rushing parts of the show where Azrael is kind of like yelling over and saying like, this is what we have to do. This is what's going on. And then I had to take a step back and be like, is this realistically what we would be doing in this situation? If someone was discussing these literally heretical ideas, would the room be that chaotic? We also have to remember that this room is full of the same number of animals as there are people. So this room is very loud. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, you know, this would be a very chaotic situation. And, you know, Lord Azra talking over all these people probably represents exactly what that situation would look like in real life. Yeah, I really like that he pursues knowledge or pursues what he believes is the right thing to do, despite all the blowback. And that is something that's very difficult because you start fearing for your life and your safety, or you risk being shunned by your community. But it's such an important thing to be able to stand up to. And then we have this other scene later when they're continuing to talk about what's happening in the world at large. It's with the master and the librarian in front of the fire after they've already given Lyra the alethiometer. And this was a scene I really liked in the book. And it was a scene that they actually used a lot of dialogue from the book for the TV show. And what did you think about this scene? I love yeah. that they stay true to the book. Yeah, I, I actually just read that section and it's almost word for word exactly the same. And I think it is a very important scene. So I, it's why they kept it the way that they did because they're essentially setting up what's going to happen to Lyra in the future. They're basically saying she's just going to have a really tough future moving forward and we can't do anything about it. We just have to sit and wait and see what happens. So it's almost like now we're a part of that journey, but we're also off on the sidelines with the master and the librarian. We're just going to have to watch and see where she goes and how she handles her future. And I love how they express what they collectively as the scholars of Jordan College think and feel about Lyra. Because, you know, the master initiates this whole conversation with Lyra about taking the alethiometer to keep her safe. And when the master is talking with Charles, the librarian, in front of the fire, as soon as the master mentions that this whole thing has to do with Lyra and her safety, the librarian is immediately like, this is about Lyra? He was really concerned. And I think it's interesting to see how even though Lyra maybe never had strong individual connections with a parent figure growing up in Jordan College, she, as a kid, missed the fact that all the scholars collectively really cared about her and cherished her and wanted to keep her safe. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet. But yeah, it's like everyone loves her, but they don't really express it in the ways that she needs them to at her age. One little thing that did bug me about the alethiometer, though, is that they completely neglected to show her how to use it. That seems pretty important. You know, you give this girl this very powerful tool and tell her that it can do something very mystical. And then they're like, well, you know, buena suerte. Hope this works out for you. And they just like shoved her out the door. Yeah, it's like, we'll figure it out. That's a lot of confidence in Lyra, but it's a lot of negligence on their part. Yeah, and there is a scene where I think it's right when Lord Asriel arrives at the university where there's this big book 
this book is open, has a bunch of symbols on it, and the master has just closed the alethiometer and he's putting it away. So in the book, he uses this big old textbook, essentially, to read the symbols. He's been using this crazy fat book to try to interpret this, the different symbols that he's getting off the alethiometer. And in the book, he actually sort of gives Lyra like a rudimentary lesson on how to use it. But they just did not do that in the show. And that bugs me to no end because how is she going to magically understand how to use it? She was talking at it right before she ran to the plane. I love that you brought up the airship because she actually tries to run down an airship mid-takeoff twice during this episode. The first is with Lord Asriel, which for me was a very important scene because I think it really highlighted their relationship because he explicitly says, I don't have time for you right now. And she basically begs him to take her with him. And to me, it looked like there was a lot of pain on Lord Asriel's face. Like he wanted to take her with him, but he just couldn't. But at the same time, we should probably take him at face value of what he says about, like, I don't have time for you. I'll bring you something back. Right. It's it's that same struggle that he has when he's becoming that caretaker for her, when he's taking her shoes off and actually allowing himself to care for her. I think it's it's just that little switch that he tries to turn off immediately. I think that really plays into Lord Azriel's view of himself and what role he plays in society because he sees himself as this explorer who has to bring stuff back to Jordan College and get this money and continue this research. And when it comes to Lyra, he straight up says to her that he doesn't have time for her. He doesn't see himself as someone who needs to assume the role of a father figure for her because he just wants to do his own thing. He's got to go back up north. He's got to take more pictures of the Aurora or whatever Lord Asriel has planned. Yeah, and I think he sees what he's doing as being definitely a higher priority and also a very dangerous path to take. So there's also a part where Lyra asks if they can still trust the master and he says, I don't trust anyone. So it's almost like he doesn't want to build any close relationships either because maybe he'll start to care about them or maybe he'll start to trust them and then something happens and he'll be betrayed. So it's better for him to just cut himself off and just focus on what he believes is the task that he's supposed to do. And I love that scene because it really highlights the relationship between Lyra and Lord Asriel and this idea that they each have their own role in this relationship and in this world because Lyra is trying to connect with Lord Asriel as if he were a parent. And she says, do we still trust the master? And Lord Asriel responds with, I don't trust anyone. So there's this very clear distinction in the dialogue like, Lyra wants this concept of we to exist between them, and he is saying, I'm on my own. I don't have time for my niece. And he literally gets on an airship and just flies away from that problem because his role is different than hers, and he's very blunt about it. But as he's taking off, Roger kind of jumps in for Lyra and shouts up at the airship that she's better than you think she is. She's special. And Lord Azrael responds with, everyone's special. And now, Sharon, I think this is probably a good segue into the bit that we wanted to do for this week. So we're going to play Devil's Advocate, right? Can you explain what that is one more time? So Devil's Advocate is we take a statement and either one person argues for it being correct and the other person argues for it being incorrect. So the phrase that we're going to discuss this week is whether or not we agree with Lord Asriel's statement that everyone is special. 
What's your stance, Sharon? My stance is that they're not. And I interpreted the way that he said everyone's special almost as, you silly child, whatever, everyone says that. It's not actually true, but sure, everyone's special. If it makes you feel better, fine, everyone's special. In terms of all of our basic needs, we all have the same basic needs. We have to eat, we have to sleep, we need a roof over our heads, some form of shelter, warmth, all that stuff. We need human interactions, we need love, we need basic things. And so in that sense, everyone is exactly the same. We have minor differences here and there, but like, I feel like deep down, we are exactly the same. There is no one special, so because everyone is special, then no one is special, and so Lyra isn't that special either. Well, I guess, in the spirit of the game, I'm gonna have to agree to disagree. That is fair. But if we try to look at ourselves and whether or not we are special, from the lens of what other people think about it, doesn't that really detract from our own value? Maybe in like a smaller sense, but if you look at like a larger view of things, people tend to fall into categories. So you have the category of really good students, category of people who are really good artists or really good writers or just really good with their hands, but they all kind of fall within a certain category. So yeah, you could say that they're unique and they're special, but they still fall into categories. Like they're different but still not that different. But isn't it the minor differences that actually give us value? Because we can take all these people and look at the little things that make them different, like, oh, this guy's really good at working with wood, this person's a really good writer, this person is incredibly good at volleyball, and this person is a really great student or a good parent. And don't the minor differences among us, you know, add value to our society? Don't those little bits like make us relevant and unique and important, not just to ourselves, but in like a much larger context for society at large? Well, that was a great first episode of the TV show and I suppose of our podcast. I really liked talking about this whole concept of class with you. That was a lot of fun. Yes, and there will be more to come next week with the new episode coming out on Monday, I believe. At this point, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Dust and Demons, a Dark Materials discussion. Please remember you can find us on Instagram at dust underscore and underscore demons. You can find us on Twitter. Our tagline is at dust discussion. And you can email us at dustanddemons at gmail.com. We've had a great first week. We really appreciate you listening. And we hope you listen next week. It's been a lot of fun. Take care, everyone.